Good morning. I left you in anticipation there. It did work. It's good to be with you once again. I do bring you greetings from IBC. It was noted last week that uh, it was somewhat of a takeover of this church from the IBC people. They were called, I don't know what he called them, but I'm going to call us the Three Amigos. So if you've never seen that movie, can recommend it. You'll understand why. And I don't know why um, they saved me to last. Well, they saved the best to last, or well, they're like Jesus, they gave the best at the first. But you had the doctor two weeks ago, you had the German last week, and no, it's not the English, it's the Irish. And it's not Scottish either, as some people still like to tease. But I do bring you greetings from Emmanuel. Uh, it's always a blessing for me on the outside, as I've gotten to know some of the brothers here, to see some of the camaraderie and the fellowship and the love and the bonds that you have. Even if some people asking, should I keep a beard? Should I shave it? You know, really? I see he shaved it, so obviously the majority won. But it's such a blessing as a fellow brother to see men engaging with one another in love and unity. Can I just say that that for me, on the outside looking in, is such a blessing. Continue to do so. Continue to love and encourage one another. Continue to build one another up in the faith. You ladies, I know what happens as well. I'm not friends with some of you here, but mostly the men. So encourage one another. Be with one another as we are here this morning. We are going to be looking at Daniel chapter 5, and it's a different man. I'm going to call him Belshazzar. That's how I pronounce it. That's how the Irish pronounce it. So we'll begin at verse 5. Immediately, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote in the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw. He saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. The king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, the astrologers. The king declared, to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king its interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed and his color changed, and his lords were perplexed. The queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banqueting hall, and the, que and the queen declared, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father, the king, made him chief of the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, the astrologers, because an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belshazzar. 
Now let Daniel be called, and he will show the interpretation. Then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king answered and said to Daniel, You are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king my father brought from Judah. I have heard of you that the spirit of the gods is in you, and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men, the enchanters, have been brought in before me to read this writing and make known to me its interpretation, but they could not show the interpretation of the matter. But I have heard that you can give its interpretations and solve problems. Now, if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom." Then Daniel answered and said before the king, Let your gifts be for yourself, and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. O king, the Most High God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed. And whom he would, he kept alive. And whom he would, he raised up. And whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up, and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne, and his glory was taken away from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind, and his mind was made like that of a beast, and his dwellings was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven. Until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. And you, son Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, Though you knew all this, but you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven and the vessels of his house you have brought in before you. And you and your lords, your wives and your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood and stone, which do not see or hear or know, but the God in whose hand is your breath. And whose are all your ways you have not honored? Then from his presence the hand was sent, and the writing was inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed. Meany, meany, tekel, and parson. This is the interpretation of the matter. Meany. God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Then Belshazzar gave the command, and Daniel was clothed with purple. A chain of gold was put around his neck, and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar the Chaldean was killed, 
was king, was killed. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. Here endeth the reading of God's word. Let us come to him now in a moment of prayer. Let us pray. Our loving, eternal, heavenly Father, as we come before your awesome presence now this morning, on this your day, we come with fear in our hearts. We come knowing that you are a God who is to be feared above all else. Even as we read this passage and we see how man and his wickedness turned those sacred things that you had for himself, how you judged him. Dear Lord, this morning, would you not find favor with us here as we come to worship you? Even as we've sung your praises, as we've read your word, as we've prayed to you, dear Lord, to worship and to honor you, may you continue to dwell with us here. May you help the one who opens up your word. You know, dear Lord, it's been a difficult week, but we pray that the things that will come forth would be to your honor and to your glory and to your praise. Dear Lord, we pray for those who sit in the seat. May their hearts at this time, may, their, may the soil of their heart be tilled up that as the seed is sown out, that it would fall on good ground. We pray for those, dear Lord, who are struggling. Be near to them. Encourage them here this morning from your holy word. For those who are sick, bring them, bring them health and strength that they could even hear this word and understand it through their pains and their aches. Dear Lord, we pray that your hand would be upon us, that your spirit would be amongst us now as we come to open up your holy, precious word. And we ask all these things in and through Christ's precious name. Amen. <clears throat> in 1986, there was a famous football tournament going on in a south... Sorry, I need to say that again. There was a famous soccer tournament. Football is the proper terminology. It's with a white and black ball, not a little oval one. If you want, you could lynch me now. It's fine. I don't mind. I'm just kidding. In 1986, there was a soccer tournament. The best teams in all of the world flew in to Colombia. Pretty stark place. But the best players in all of the world had congregated to be with their national team. They were what's classed as the best of the best. The dream team, so to speak. There was one young player in particular who stood out in that tournament amongst all. He won player of the year. He won player of the tournament. And he was about this height. He was small. But that tournament isn't remembered for all the great things that he did, although he did do a lot of good things. But he was remembered for one instance. That little player by the name of Maradona picked the ball up in England's own half and he charged at that defense. And he beat one and he beat two and he beat three. And the ball got knocked against another player's leg and it got looped up into the air. And Peter Shelton, the England goalkeeper, came rushing out to punch it. And Maradona, this height, against a guy taller than me, with hands in the air, somehow managed to beat that six-foot-four English goalkeeper, and the ball trickled into the back of the net. People were astounded. The crowd went up in uproar. 
they thought, wow, what a goal. One of the greatest goals ever scored until a little R came up on the screen and the replay was shown. Maradona had cheated. How? He'd stuck his arm up into the air, he clenched his fist, and he stuck it beside his head. Okay, remember he's really small. He needed all the advantage he could get. And he stuck it beside his head, and as he went up, he lifted it. And his hand hit the ball, not his head. And those of you who know soccer know that that's a handball. Play should have stopped. England were on the attack at that time. They probably would have went on to win the tournament. Argentina went on to win it. But that goal went down, as people called it, the hand of God. Maradona afterwards, with a so sneaky grin on his face, I don't really like the man, so you'll understand why I'm kind of... Came out and he said, it was a little of the hand of Maradona and a little of the hand of God. That's where it got its name from, the hand of God. What a horrible thing to say. But he said it nonetheless. And it goes down in history as being the hand of God. It was the hand of God that won Argentina the World Cup. Oh, gripes me to this day. But no matter. In Daniel 5 that we've just read, there's another instance of the hand of God. But this is one that is not false. It's not one that's built on lies. It's not one that's built on cheating. It's one that most definitely could not be ignored in Daniel 5, and it's one that cannot be ignored today. The hand appeared, and I popped the finger. And the finger wrote on the wall. God himself wrote upon that wall. The message that God wrote would soon become very clear and its promise almost certain. Any time and any way that God speaks to us, we should do what? Stop and listen. There, someone's looking up the hand of God. If I was rude, I would say, get that boy out of here. But that's okay. My accent annoys you. I can put on an Australian one. <laughs> but I'm not going to. That, see, someone's leaving. Yep. <laughs> in the book, in the flow of Daniel chapter 5, it just basically comes out of nowhere. Okay, the last time I was here, we were in Daniel chapter 4. Can any of the children remember who the king was? Wow, what a sermon. Good job. Nebuchadnezzar, that was an adult's voice, not a child's, but that's okay. Nebuchadnezzar was the king. And we remember in Daniel 4 that we're told that the king of heaven and all his works are right and all his works are just. And those who walk in pride, God is able to humble. Daniel 4, 37. We've been dealing with King Nebuchadnezzar, the guy with the attitude problem. The guy with the red face and the anger wanting to just rip people from limb to limb. We've learned of him in, in Daniel 1 all the way through to Daniel 4. And then suddenly we meet this new guy, King Belshazzar in 5.1. But how did this come about? It's always good to put people in their place. 
how did this happen? Well, Nebuchadnezzar died and they reckon 562 BC. He reigned for about 43 years. And less than another 25 years after his death, all was lost. He had a son who followed him on the throne. They all have weird names. I'm not even going to try to pronounce them. I have them in my notes. I don't even know how I spelled them right, but it had that little red line. So obviously I didn't. He ever, this, this son, however, was apparently assassinated by his brother-in-law. And he reigned for about another four years, and he was succeeded by a further son. So you can see Nebuchadnezzar being that great king thought he would rule forever. Boom, he's dead. And it's just one king after the other. And they keep coming, and they keep coming. And as one comes, they kill each other, they assassinate each other, they take each other out. You see, Belshazzar's father had a problem. He had a problem of faith. He was at a, at a very passionate uh, person in regards to the moon god Sin. Okay? Anything to do with, like, why would you have a god of sin? I don't quite understand that, but he did. And the, the Babylonian clergy were so alarmed about this guy and so worried about him that they, they kicked him out. And they put up kind of this de facto king in Babylon whose name was Belshazzar. And that's where Belshazzar come from. Was he a real king? No. He was a pretend king. He was basically a puppet on the throne. You see, there's a, a gap between four and five of about 20 years. You've got to remember that. That's very important. There's 20 years from the end of chapter 4 to chapter 5. You see, the book of Daniel was never written to give us a history lesson. It was never written to tell us about the Babylonians or, as we'll learn, the Medes and the Persians. It was written to encourage the Hebrew people, and it's written to encourage you as well. It's written to encourage us that though we be defeated, though we be sent into exile, that God was sovereign in control of all things. I believe God indeed has a sense of humor. This morning we read Romans 8, 28. God works all things. Not some things, but all things. Even when the Hebrew people couldn't trace the hand of God, they could trust the hand of God. Same goes for you. You might, not, you might have come in here this morning with illness and sickness. I don't know. I had a hard week. I have a kid with scarlet fever. But you know what? God has him in the, hand of his, in the palm of his hand. Because God is sovereign in all things. We always like to think God's sovereign in the good times. Everything's going great. God's in control. When the hard times hit, we kind of ask ourselves, what are you doing? But we have to trust in Him. We have to believe in Him. Even though we can't trace His hand, we should believe in it. You see, He's working out His plans. And He's, he's doing His purposes for His glory. And every now and then, as it were, he slips back the curtain and he lets us have a glimpse of what's happening. You see, Daniel 5 is another occasion when God just slightly pulls back that curtain and we're able to see 
just like that fiery furnace in chapter 3. And if I'm brought back, Daniel in the lion's den of chapter 6. You see, these stories or these lessons in the, in, the, in the book of Daniel are some of the most memorable stories that we teach our kids. You see, we'll see again the truth of Daniel 4.25 when he says, Know that the Most High King rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he wills. Man thinks he appoints who he wants, but it's actually God. Our God gives kingdoms to whom he wills, but he also takes them away from them as well. Belshazzar is about to find out the very night that he has this party that his time's up. The handwriting is on the wall for him. We're going to look at this passage under three main headings if you're taking notes. God sees our sins when he is mocked. God confronts our sins and we should tremble. God exposes our sins and we are found wanting. God sees our sins. God confronts our sins. God exposes our sins. The last Babylonian king, Belshazzar, decided to throw a big party. He had a huge shindig, as we would call it. But what he didn't know was Darius the Mede was about to come upon him. And he was about to bring his empire to a very, very, very speedy end. To call this event as a party is very kind. We could use other words, but there's children here. But you adults should get that picture in your mind of how wicked this party was. It was quite the event. It was foolishness. It was rashness. He made this feast for a thousand of his lords. It's a lot of people. Furthermore, and I want you to get this, this is very important. Furthermore, he did something that kings normally do not do. He drank wine in front of them. You can look it up. It was normally the custom of the king to refrain while the rest were there. But this man had no regard for anything. He didn't care. He cracked open the wine, chugged it down, and he was having a good old time. He was the one that set the example of drunkenness. He was the one that sent, set the example of sens our sensuality and, and revelry on this fateful night. He was trying to be the life and soul of the party. But his own life would soon become to an abrupt end. See, what a fool Belshazzar is. But it doesn't just stop there and all those foolish things. He decides to add to his blasphemy. There goes that mic again. Okay, fix it. Good. Okay. He decides to add to it. He's already blasphemed. He's mockery. He's idolatry. And he adds sensuality to the list. But while he's getting drunk, what does he do? He commands that the vessels of gold and silver that Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple in Jerusalem be brought in. So that what? So that we can all drink from them. 
Verse 2 records the command of bringing them and summoning them. Verse 3 emphasizes the point that what a foolish man this is. Belshazzar, along with the lords and his numerous wives and all the concubines that he had, he drank the wine from the sacred vessels taken from Yahweh's temple. He's not even interested in stopping there. It's as if he throws salt in the wind when he says those words. Praise the gods of gold and silver and bronze and iron and wood and stone. What a horrible man. It almost sounds like an Olympic celebration with all the gold and silver and bronze. But let me tell you, there's absolutely nothing noble about that night. You see, the very act of him taking those vessels and drinking from them and offering them to his God was as if he was sticking his fist in the holy God and saying, what are you going to do? He's trying to make a spectacle of Judah's God. Belshazzar takes those holy vessels, those vessels that are treated with care and with, with love and kept in the temple, and he just throws them about. And he fills them with wine. And they smashed against each other. And he doesn't care. Perhaps he was trying to win the favor and protection of his own gods. Hey, I've overcome Judah's God. Look at me. Proverbs sums this man up very quickly. A worthless person. A wicked man. Goes about with crooked speech, winks his eye, signals with his feet, points with his finger, with perverted heart desires evil, continually sowing discord. Therefore calamity will come upon him suddenly. In a moment he will be broken beyond healing. God will not be mocked. Even think of the prophecy in Isaiah. In our Sunday school this past year, we've been teaching the kids, we've been going into the Old Testament and showing the promise and then coming into the new and showing the fulfillment. Isaiah 47 even tells us about this man's demise when it says, You felt secure in your wickedness. You said, No one sees me. Your wisdom and your knowledge led me, led you astray, and you said in your heart, I am, and there is no one besides me. But evil shall come upon you, which you will not know how to charm away. Disaster shall fall upon you, for which you will not be able to atone. And ruin shall come upon you suddenly, of which you shall, sh shall know nothing. God will not be mocked. You see, there's no human wall so high. There's no human accomplishment so great that it can't secure against the judgment of God. We can try to build walls around ourselves that we think God perhaps won't see. We think that because we're great people that God will look favorably upon us. No one is secure against the judgment of God. No one. You see, 
we should all learn how true it is of this statement that Belshazzar was shaking his fist against us, against the holy God. But scarily, there's a Belshazzar in all of our hearts. We need God to deliver us from us. This morning I ask you sitting here, are you like this man? Are you partying like there's no tomorrow? Even though you know the truth, you've been taught it for years. Yet you're drinking in your heart from the vessels of the Lord. Because you're still in your sin. You've perhaps told others that you believe in this God, yet your life is a testimony that would say otherwise. You're addicted to things that you shouldn't be. But it shouldn't surprise us. It's sad that we're born in sin. If any of us here think that we're born perfect little angels, I can show you a video of a 16-month-old kid screaming at me in bad temper. He's got ginger hair, which should say it all. He's got a temper like no other. Did I teach him that? I should hope not. Maybe I did. I hope his mother didn't teach him it. He was born in sin. We don't teach our kids to be bad, do we? I should hope not. If you do, we need to speak afterwards. <laughs> but our kids are naturally sinners. And you know what? Kids grow up and they become adults. And adults sin too. Even this week, we read of a man who we thought was strong in the faith. One who perhaps some of us here have read his books. And yet he says now he has no faith. This morning, all of us, all of us who say we believe in God, I urge all of us to make our calling and our election sure. Be honest. Do a James. Look in the mirror and look at yourself. And be honest before a holy God. And if you need to repent, do it. If it's the first time you come to faith, do it. For those of us who are in the faith, it's a hard slog. Sometimes you want to get that white towel and we want to chuck it in. Please don't. We are His children. He is our God. You see, Belshazzar then, secondly, is confronted with his sin, or God confronts our sins. The Babylonians are having a gala to remember. I can't stress enough this. The, the, it's hard for us to, to like put in our words, without saying words that we shouldn't, how rambunctious this party was. It had everything that a party should have. You see, they're completely out of reality. They're just living in this bubble, this la-la land. But you see, sin does that. Sin makes us dull. It makes us stupid, if we're being honest. You see, 
It's noted that Belshazzar is perhaps the supreme Old Testament parallel to the rich fool in Jesus' parables. Having already given their expression for the lust of more, they weren't just content with the wine and with the food. They then had to go to a temple and take the vessels years before. I don't know where they kept them at, probably in a bin bag if they had them in those days. And then they whipped them out thinking, yes, we'll get one over in Judah's God. They wanted more. Sin does that. You want more and you want more and you want more. See, they would never be satisfied without more. Think of the rich fool. What did he want? More money. He wasn't happy to give it up. Blinded by the pursuit of that lust. Blinded. They thought, hey, let's have it all. Let's take everything that's been given and let's add a little bit more. But you see, verse, verse 5 is one of those verses that makes the hair on the back of your neck stand straight up. They're in the middle of this party. They're in the middle of drinking from those vessels. And the Bible says suddenly or immediately. The king is brought to his very senses. I'm sure if the Guinness Book of Records was around, Belshazzar would set the record for the shortest time it was to sober up. Immediately. You see, from verses 5 to 7, this man goes from a break to a reality check. Belshazzar is yanked back into the real world. He's dragged back into the seriousness of that moment. What pulled him back in? The fingers of a human hand. You ever looked at your hand and it brought you back into reality? This man did. That hand appeared. The finger stretched out. And it wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw that hand. And he saw as it wrote those words. It's the same finger that wrote the Ten Commandments. But the God that wrote the Ten Commandments now confronts Belshazzar with his sin and his immediate judgment. Verse 6 records that fourfold response of Belshazzar. First of all, his face changed color. You ever feel that happen to you when you thought you were red? The next thing, you go ash white. That red face that was drunk, that was flushed from drinking all that wine, is now turned as white as a sheet. His mind went into a tizzy. He went limp. And his knees knocked together. Anyone who's ever stood up here is so thankful that there's a little guard at the front. Our knees tremble when we stand up here. Take a look at this shaking sovereign king now. You see, Belshazzar's demeaning of Yahweh's vessels was his way of 
demeaning Yahweh himself. Belshazzar was not simply what we would call a drunken slob, but he's also a profane slob. But God, the three times holy God, brought him instantly back into reality. He was seeing the fingers of a man's hand writing on the palace wall. He becomes deathly pale. His thoughts are running through his mind. He's terrified. His lower body, as it says in the Bible, lost all strength. The clear sight and the sheer spookiness of those writing fingers produced paralyzing terror. Some of them think that his limbs gave way. Some people think that his, the, his loins were loosed and many think of his bladder and his bowels and hey, if that's what happened, that's what happened. When we stand before a holy God, how will we fare out? The king tries with all his strength to gain composure. He tries, as it were, to look upon his audience and, and, and pull himself together but it's a bumbling, stumbling effort to say the least. He called loudly to bring in those people who he thought could help. What an idiot! Did he not know these men had no idea? Hey, they've already had three opportunities to do this and they failed miserably on each occasion. But he promised these wise men, <laughs> wise men, yeah, my foot, they're wise, they haven't a clue what's going on. He wants to honor them. He wants to clothe them in purple. He wants to give them wealth. He tells them not a chain of gold. He wants to give them status in the land. He wants to make them the third ruler in the kingdom. If they could do one thing, tell me what it means. You see, the foolishness of this move, the foolishness of him bringing these people in only adds to the foolishness in verses 1 to 4. These intellectuals are not intellectuals at all. They're supposed to be the wise men of Babylon. They couldn't interpret Nebuchadnezzar's dream in chapter 2. And they had to be bailed out by who? Daniel. The same thing happened again in chapter 4. And now here this third time, all the king's wise men are brought in once more. And what do they do? They strike out. You see, Belshazzar's response is somewhat predictable. Just as Nebuchadnezzar lost the plot, his face got red, he wanted to rip people apart. Belshazzar was greatly alarmed again. And his color changed again. And his lords looked upon him and they were perplexed. The text reads, So now the king was really frightened. And all the blood drained from his face. The nobles were in panic. You see, Belshazzar had been confronted with his sin by a holy and an omnipotent God. And quite rightly, he trembles. You see, where does one turn in such moments? Where do people go when things are hard? 
They live their life in sin. And when the hard times come, what do they do? They turn to our faith. Or they turn to religion of some sort. Belshazzar did the same thing. He wanted the, Cal the, and he, he wanted the astrologers and all the conjurers and all the mystical people to come and help him. He wanted that text that was written on the plaster to be told to him by these so-called faith people, but they couldn't tell him anything. Why? Because God was not with them. God sometimes does this to us. It's as if He aggravates our helplessness. We think we can do it ourselves. We think we can get over this hurdle. We think we think we can get over this sin. But we can't. We can't do these things without the help and the strength of God. You see, the human defiance is quite clear of Belshazzar. But you might wonder where that divine opportunity appears. Well, it's precisely at the very end of verse 9. God has frightened Belshazzar. He shook his fist at God. God brought him to a sense of himself. He's reduced to this snivering, shuffling, or sniffling mess. And he's got no support whatsoever. He's therefore at the very, what we would call, the very edge of the abyss. He's at that very edge, that precipice, where he thinks there's no hope. But suddenly there is. He's object of God's terror. But you see, it's a very kind terror once again by our holy, loving God. You see, God does Belshazzar the favor of leaving him without any recourse in his utter helplessness. He gives him a huge opportunity. You see, whenever God brings a man to the end of himself, he smashes all his props away, all those things that that man thinks is holding him up, all those idols that he's built in his life, he crushes. Think of your own conversion. Think of those moments before God did that work in your heart. Speaking from my own experience, I was white with fear. If you choke in your dinner today, Merv, where will your soul be? You talk about a wake-up call. Sitting for years in the front row. Sitting with a suit and tie on. Hearing the same thing week in and week out. Until one day God crushed everything. He crushed me. He showed me the things that you think are supporting you are not. The things that you look to for support, those friends that you have, they're not the friend that I will be to you. I was white. I can remember in my bedroom in Balamukkan, it's the road we lived on, my knees were trembling. I knew 
that if God in those moments was to take my breath away from my body and I was to lie flat on that ground dead, I knew that my soul would be in hell and not for all of eternity. But God in His kindness and God in His sovereignty and God in His rich grace brought peace upon my life. A peace that only He can give. He took that heart that was hard, that heart that was had no time for Him, and He turned it into a heart of flesh. Does that mean I'm perfect? No. We always tell our Sunday school kids that some of the worst sinners in the whole church are the people sitting right here. We're all sinners. The kids have this thought that, oh, if you're a member of a church, then, oh, you don't sin. We do. Parents, do your children think you're perfect? I know they don't because they see you every day. But confess your sins before them. Show them that you yourself are not perfect. That every day, every single day, you need the help of the Holy Spirit in your life. You need Christ to be in your heart. You need the Father to be there for you. Show them this. But what about you this morning? That was my life, but what about you? When a holy God, a God that we've sung to, a God that we've prayed to, a God that we've read His words this morning is presented to you. How do you react? Is it in fear? Perhaps for some it's laughter. Some of you perhaps don't even think there is a living God. But I ask you this morning, how do you stand before a holy God? It's not in my notes. But that last verse on that hymn that we just sung, when he shall come with trumpet sound, oh may I then in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. We sung those words. But do you realize that every person that's sitting here will stand before that throne? Everyone. And you don't stand in a little group. It's not going to be IBC over here and then Veritas here and all the different churches. It's not going to be the Campbell family, whatever other family. You stand alone. How do you stand individually? Children, how do you stand before a holy God? Do you think because mommy or daddy are Christians that you'll get to heaven? You won't. It's only if you put your saving faith in God. Thirdly, God exposes sin and Belshazzar was found wanting. You see, we've arrived at what we could call a crisis moment in our text. Verses 10 to 12 are the turning point. You see, the story 
of Belshazzar's feast is, is, could be summed up like this. It introduces Belshazzar. It shows us the feast. It shows us the mockery of Yahweh's vessels. It then shows us the handwriting on the wall. The magicians are summoned. Daniel is remembered. Daniel is summoned. The interpretation is given. Belshazzar's kingdom is overthrown. You see, structured repetition is used throughout all of Daniel to emphasize the book's two main themes. Yahweh's supremacy over all earth and the importance for the Jews to remain loyal to their God even when they're in exile. See, these two themes are emphasized once again by these matching stories about Yahweh's supremacy over these two mighty men, two powerful and proud Babylonian monarchs, Nebuchadnezzar on the one hand, Belshazzar on the other. Hearing the words of Belshazzar crying out, the queen comes in. She comes into that banquet hall and she addresses the king, Oh, king, live forever. It's the way they were supposed to. She basically tells them, Belshazzar, get a grip of yourself. There's a man in your kingdom. There's a man in whom is the spirit of the holy gods, as she says. Nebuchadnezzar recognized him. Nebuchadnezzar saw that there was light and there was understanding and there was wisdom in him. And he elevated him above all these losers that are before you that aren't even able to tell you anything. Why? The Bible tells us because he has an excellent spirit of knowledge and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems. Daniel. Don't you know this, Belshazzar? Don't you know about this man? Daniel's called out of obscurity and out of somewhat retirement. And he'll come in here, and I guarantee he will show you the interpretation. Why? Because the holy God is with him. Daniel is a man of God. Daniel is the man who's put his faith and his trust in God and not in kings and princes. There's somewhat of a dig at the old man now that he's in his 80s. He's referred to as one of the exiles from Judah. Another little nudge in the ribs there. You know, don't think you're too smart, boy. Don't think you're important. Who are you anyway? Uh, you're just one of the exiles. See, interestingly, the king calls him by his Jewish name. Belshazzar repeats what the queen mother said in verse 14. He recounts the failure and the impotence of all these magicians and faith people, and he reaffirms that promise. Look, if you tell me what it is, you'll get purple, you'll get gold, you'll be made third in the king. Daniel's response is not disrespectful, but it's very direct. Keep your stuff. I don't want your stuff. I'll read the writing on the wall, and I'll make known the interpretation, but your stuff, give it to somebody else. But before Daniel goes and interprets that, he gives Belshazzar a bit of a schooling. It's as if he goes up to him and slaps him a couple of times in the face. He does a little bit of preaching for him. And he, rem he reminds him of, 
of history and biblical theology. Note that God is referred five times in verses 18 to 24. He's called the Most High God. He's called the Lord of Heaven. Verse 23, it says, The God in whose hand is your breath. You see, the Most High God gave your, your father, King Nebuchadnezzar, the kingdom. And he set him over many people. And yet he became arrogant, as men do. And he became prideful. What did God do? Did he turn the other way and not do anything? No. He made him live like a beast with the animals. God did this to this man so that he would know and that those that would follow him would know that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he wills. Belshazzar, you're just like him. And really, shouldn't you know better? You're even more responsible than your father. You've blasphemed. You've mocked the name of a holy God. The God in whose hand is your breath, you have not honored. Therefore, because you have done these things, God has exposed your sin. God has put you on the scales and has found you wanting. Meanie, meanie, tickle, and farson. You see, all those letters would have all run continuously. There would have been no breaks. Daniel very wisely steps in and he separates those letters into the appropriate word divisions to make no mistakes. Already, Daniel is more wiser than all the magicians. Why? Is it anything to do with Daniel? It's all to do with God. See, numbered, numbered, weighted, and divided. Daniel gives Belshazzar those devastating words of the interpretation. God has numbered the days of your kingdom. And it's over. Now, if you were the king and you still got a crown on your head and you're having a big party and you're not really thinking about the outside world, you'd be thinking, Is that a, it's ended? No, it's kind of only beginning. God has numbered your days, not you. God has numbered your days and not you. You see, you have been weighed in the balances and you have been found wanting. This man knew of Nebuchadnezzar and what God had done to him. And yet still in his pride and his arrogance, he put his fist to God and said, who do you think you are? I'm the king. Sorry, dude. 
you've been found wanting. And then not only to add to add more insults, but that kingdom that Nebuchadnezzar thought would reign forever, the one that all your ancestors thought was, was mighty, was powerful, would reign forever, split in two. It's given to the Medes and the Persians. You see, God is closing the book in Belshazzar's life. Belshazzar, you thought when you took those vessels that you were a heavyweight, I'm sorry, sir, you've just been knocked right out. God is not to be mocked. You challenge the Most High God, and you know what? You lose. You cross the line, and your gig and your party is up. God saw your sin, and God's going to judge it. You see, some of us may enjoy our sins for a season, but payday is coming. Payday is coming to those who will not humble themselves and bow the knee. Every knee will bow, and every tongue confess. I always chuckle at that verse, every tongue. That even includes the Irish. Every tongue. It's not just Americans. It's not just the British. Every single person on this, world, on this earth. Don't think that you won't do this. Because I can 100 infinity percent tell you it's going to happen. Jesus Christ is Lord. And it's to Him that we will give an account to. As God's messenger, it's my place to tell you that your life will be placed in those scales too. God will judge you for who you are. Either you will be a sheep or you will be a goat. Either you will be saved or you will not be saved. There is no middle ground. It's heaven or hell. Where are you going? Where is your eternal destination? You see, chapters 2, 3, and 4 all end with some, some sort of confession by Nebuchadnezzar. But the end of chapter 5 seems kind of like sharp and sudden and cold. Turn out the lights. The party's over. Tell the band, get their stuff and go home. And they don't ever need to come back, ever. The Most High King is taking Belshazzar out. And he's setting up a new kingdom. A new monarch. God is setting up a new monarch. And his name is Cyrus. Belshazzar shows absolutely no sign of repentance for his arrogance. For all the blaspheming that he done. For all the idolatry that he did. For the pride in his heart. For all the sensuality that he had. He shows no sign of remorse. None. What does he do? He hears the words of Daniel and then he gives him stuff. 
He's a bit like King Herod. When King Herod took the head of John the Baptist, he had to do what he said he was going to do. So does Nebuchadnezzar or Belshazzar here. He promised purple and a chain and third in command. He had to keep his word. Belshazzar gives the command and Daniel is clothed in the purple and he gets the chain and he's raised up to the third ruler in the kingdom. And Once again, do we not see that God honored his faithful servant? Even in a time of hostility and even in a time of being in that pagan world, Daniel, as it were, was sent into the retirement home of men. You know, Nebuchadnezzar was the, was the most powerfulest man in all of the world. Do you not think people would have knew who Daniel was? But for 20 years, he's like put in a retirement home. But God brought him out of it. God made him the third ruler in the kingdom. Daniel's ascension to the Babylonian Empire was very short-lived. It was somewhat of getting a promotion the day before a company goes bust. It was like getting a medal even though you'd lost the war. It lasted for only a night. However, Darius, the next king, the next governor that comes, he will in the next chapter, hopefully we'll see the value of God's man. It has to be noted that Babylon surpassed any city in the known world at that time. Because you might ask yourself the question, well, how did Belshazzar get taken out? The walls were 56 miles long. They were 80 feet thick. They were two, 320 feet high. They were magnificent, the walls of Babylon, the city itself. How on earth did these Medo-Persians get into that city? Very easily. Water goes in there, send it that way. They turned the water a different way. And with that water level low, those soldiers were able to wade through that city. And while those Babylonians were feasting, as, as many of the historians even back up what our, our Bible tells us, that as they were feasting, these men came in. Belshazzar bites the dust. And Darius the Mede receives the kingdom from God. The Babylonian king had challenged and he had mocked the Most High God. And it was no contest. He had been confronted with his sin. And he had shown no repentance. And God says, enough is enough. And he takes him out. You see, God's judgment didn't come like, as we would say, like the frog in the pot. That we turn it on and it takes a long time. No, God's judgment came in a night. Like that. See, those people who know their Bibles know, even in those days, that God's prophecy was being let out. Babylon was going to fade away. 
It's going to be here today and gone tomorrow. Proverbs 29 tells us this. He who is often reproved, yet stiffens his neck, will suddenly be broken beyond healing. How long, O simple ones, will you love being simple? How long will scoffers delight in their scoffing and fools hate knowledge? If you turn at my reproof, behold, I will pour out my spirit to you. I will make my words known to you because I have called and you refuse to listen. I have stretched out my hand and no one has heeded because you have ignored all my counsel and would have none of my reproof. I also will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when terror strikes you. What does Daniel 5 have to say to you? What does Daniel 5 have to say to me? With all the information that Belshazzar had, he had the history of Nebuchadnezzar. He lived in the same palace as this man. He knew what Daniel had done. He knew what God had done to Nebuchadnezzar. And with all that information, what did he do? He spurned it. He knew all these things. Yet he didn't humble himself before a holy God. Having all the correct data doesn't necessarily bring about change. Even though we live in a land that tells us when people do something wrong, well, it's their education. You know, they need to be taught in this or that. And that will make things all the better. If you were the smartest person all of the world and you gained the whole world and lose your soul, where would it be? See, politicians and, and, and smart people tell us that if there's a problem, teach them. Teach the people. That'll help all our social issues. If people only knew that what they need to be taught is the Lord Jesus Christ, it would make our world a lot better. They pump money into all these things and they, and they do things that they, that they believe will educate people and make them smarter. Belshazzar knew the truth. He was not a stupid man. He's king for Pete's sake. But what did he do with it? He did nothing. All of us in this room know that our Lord Jesus Christ came to seek and to save the lost. But what do you do with it? The men who stand up here faithfully each week and they open up this word. Tell you week after week after week of the love of Christ. Of the saving power of our Savior. What do you do with it? You kids. 
you're dismissed to go into those back rooms. And I hope your church is like our church where we teach them the truth. I know it is. And you children, you've heard messages of Jesus, of what he did on that cross, of how he was laid in that tomb. He was buried with the rich man, as Isaiah tells us. Joseph of Arimathea, the rich man took his body, his dead body, and he laid it in the tomb. But he's not there. Because he rose again. Just as he said he would. And he's now with the Father. And he is the only one. The only one. Mommy and Daddy can't do it. Mr. Merv can't do it. Your grandparents can't do it. We can't take you to heaven. And that kills me. Because I've got three kids. One who was very sick. And two older ones who have known the truth for a long time. They've been taught it since they were lying in a bouncer. And my nine-year-old, nine-year-old, also has ginger hair. Said last night, and it broke my heart. Daddy, if I can't get to sleep tonight, does that mean we don't go to church tomorrow? She was playing. She was trying to stay awake. Why? So she could have an excuse not to go to church. At nine. I can't see of my kid. I can't see of any of your children. But I can sure pray for them. I said as I started, it's fun to look on and see brothers laughing and joking with each other and even your service leader joking with one another. Joke with them too. Get into their lives. I keep saying it every time I come here, but I'm just going to keep harping on because it has to happen. You need to get down to their level. Our children need to know the truth. In this church, you tell them the truth. Praise God, but keep doing it. We live in a society now that this book the book that God's finger wrote through holy men has been chucked away. If you don't teach your kids the truth, the world teaches them lies. It's our responsibility to nurture them, to show them Christ, to even in front of them weep for their souls. This stuff matters. We can push them at getting a wonderful career. And I'm not knocking that. And we can push them to be the best sportsman that they can be or sportswoman. And that's all well and good. But when we stand before a three times holy God, it's not the job that we had. 
It's not the mansion that we lived in. It's not the money in our bank account. It's not the car that we have in the parking lot. It's not our stuff. It's how we stand before Him as a holy God. It's how our hearts stand before Him and nothing else. I push my kids at school. I push my kids to get a good job. Why? So they can provide and they can come to the church and help support it and all the rest. But the greatest gift that you can give them is the push of reading the Word of God to them every night. Of praying with them every night. This past week was hard. But you've got faithful men in this church who reached out to me. Who am I? Really? I'm not a member here. I'm a nobody. I'm just the Irish guy that turns up and preaches and leaves. Some of you might even know my might not even know my name. But some of the brothers in this church, knowing that it was a difficult week, what did they do? They sent scripture after scripture after scripture. They prayed and they prayed and they prayed. And they encouraged and they encouraged and they encouraged. Why? Because they love the Lord. Belshazzar knew these things. And he spurned them. You know these things. Will you spurn them? What are we doing with the knowledge that God has given us? Every Sunday we're taught the truth. During the week we read our Bibles. We'll read books upon books upon books. But what do we do with it? Do we hide it under a bush? Some do. Do we dim our light down so dull that it's hardly even visible that it's there just in case we might have to talk about God to others? Brother, sister, is your salt losing its flavor? What are we doing with this wonderful message of hope? This message of peace? This message of a holy God who, yes, is holy on the one hand, but is so forgiving on the other. What are we doing with it? For some, it's nothing more than walking through the doors on a Sunday morning and shaking some people's hands and, as it were, going through the motions. Let it not be said of us that we're like that. This is a faithful church. But don't keep it to these walls. Take it out there. Take it to your workplace. Take it to your schoolroom. Take it to your daycare where you drop your kids off. Don't walk in pulling and trolling and hauling the kids as 
we can tend to do. Sometimes sing a song as you walk in. It's not that hard. We have been given so much. We have been given, we are the most blessed generation in all of time. Why? You can even go into this room here. There's books galore. You can go online and download as many sermons and as many ebooks as you like. But what are you doing with it? Belshazzar had it and he threw it away. You have it, but you want to scatter it. You want to sow that seed. Start in the church, start in these young people, start in the lost, and then get out there into the world and be that bright light. Be that bush that is burning so bright for the Lord. Why? Because He is a great and an awesome God. He lifts up kings and He tears down kings. He sent His only Son and He put Him on a cross and He made Him suffer and die for who? For you and for me. See, the God of Daniel, the God who we've seen in chapter 1 and chapter 2 and 3 and 4 and 5 and hopefully next time 6, is your God. He hasn't changed. He is the same yesterday, today and forever. He is the one, if you cry unto Him, will hear your cries. He'll answer them. On Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Belshazzar found that out the hard way. He was killed that very night. On Christ is where we want to be. Not when we're dressed in Christ's righteousness and we're standing before that throne that we will hear those words. Well done good and faithful servant. Let's pray. Our loving, eternal, heavenly Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for the book of Daniel and how it instructs us not only that you're a God who protected Daniel, but you're a God who will not be mocked. Dear Lord, help us in these days not to mock you in any way. Help us to be a faithful people a God-fearing people that honors and worships you the way that you have commanded. Help us, dear Lord, to take that knowledge and that wisdom and guidance that you've given us and help us to teach it to our kids. Help us to teach it to the lost in this church and then help us, dear Lord, in all the different scenarios of life where we are to speak much of you. Help us to be faithful men and women of your word. If you have written things upon our hearts, help us to spread it abroad. For those who know you not this morning, dear Lord, we pray for them. We ask that in your might and in your power that you would save souls this morning. May you make this house a house of salvation that even we could rejoice and, and be excited to see that your hand is working amongst us. Dear Lord, encourage our hearts even as we leave. Be with us throughout the rest of this week. May your comfort and love overshadow us in all that we do. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.